This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. The digital transformation is completely changing the way that Canadians access information, buy goods and services, and connect with each other. For us to prosper and benefit from this new digital landscape, we need to ensure that Canadians have confidence that their data is safe, that their privacy is being respected, and that companies are deploying new technologies responsibly. The bill I am introducing today will do just that for Canadians. It will not only modernize Canada's privacy regime, but it will also introduce new measures to support the responsible development of artificial intelligence in our country. It includes a new world-class privacy enforcement regime, more transparency, give Canadians more control over their personal information, and sets out clear rules for businesses that want to innovate and grow in our digital economy. That was Industry Minister Francois-Philippe Champagne a couple of weeks ago as he made his opening pitch for Bill C-27, the latest attempt at privacy law reform in Canada. While the minister described it as a historic day, I wrote that I thought the bill is better described as a case of Groundhog Day, since it looks much like the previous privacy bill that died with last year's election call and which never even advanced past the committee stage. Is this bill any likelier to become law? What's in it and what's changed? What does it mean for consumers, the business community, the power of the Privacy Commissioner of Canada? To help sort through the privacy aspects of Bill C-27, the artificial intelligence regulation aspects of the bill will be the subject of a future podcast, I'm joined by Ryan Black. Based in Vancouver, Ryan is a partner with a law firm, DLA Piper, where he is co-chair of their startups, emerging companies, and technology practice, and he's a former board member of the Canadian Internet Registration Authority. Ryan, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm really glad you're able to join. You know, Parliament is now on break for the summer, but just before heading out of Ottawa, the government introduced Bill C-27, the privacy reform bill that's really three bills in one, reform of PEPIDA, the private sector privacy law, a bill to create a new privacy tribunal, and an artificial intelligence regulation bill. I'd like to park the AI bill for the purposes of this podcast, because I think it deserves a separate analysis, but instead want to focus today on what the government has in mind for privacy reform. Now, it's been a long time coming. Can you get us started by describing that long road to Bill C-27? Sure. Yeah, it's it's certainly been a long road. I mean, uh, you know, privacy legislation, you know, came into force, just became, just actually before I became a lawyer in in 2004. And at the time, it was kind of world leading privacy law. Um, and uh, unfortunately, it's it's languished since then, there's been no real meaningful privacy updates in, in quite a while, at least in the federal sector. Meanwhile, the world has moved on, you know, GDPR, a lot of people have heard about one of the most advanced kind of laws that that um, that came out post Pepita. Uh, followed by the CCPA in California, even provinces, um, you know, got to kind of get on the action on updating their privacy laws. So really, in a lot of ways, this act is playing catch up. And it was in 2020, when it was originally introduced, um, 
And, and what, ha the re you know, the kind of impetus for it is that our privacy laws kind of went from world class to backseat in the course of, you know, things like, I mean, it was introduced before the iPhone was a thing. It was introduced before social media was what it is now. Uh, obviously, a lot has changed. So one of the things that uh, the Liberal government kind of the first things that they did when they got into power um, was to adopt a digital charter, which has kind of 10 points. Um, and the Digital Charter Implementation Act, which is what this Bill C-27 is, uh, as you mentioned, it touches on a few different things. Um, but it's basically one of the key focuses of it is an attempted rewrite of our private sector federal privacy law. And when they introduced it in 2020, there was actually a surprising amount of uh, opposition, even from the commissioner um, of privacy, uh, who you know was concerned about various aspects of it. But basically, I think the government was a little bit surprised that nobody liked the thing. Um, businesses were against it. The commissioners were against it. Uh, it kind of landed with a bit of a thud and it sat on the table for a while until the election was called. Uh, when the election got called, the bill uh, disappeared. Uh, and there was really no talk about it either. That was the other interesting thing is that there was the first reading of it. And then it kind of just there was crickets after that. Um, so but now here we are, you know, in a new ele <laughs> elected term. Um, you know, we're, we're right before this legislative break. I think there's time for people to digest this thing. This new bill drops. Um, it's not that substantially different than the last bill. There are definitely some tweaks. They definitely listen to some of their critics, particularly from the privacy commissioner. Um, but, uh, you know, here we are with a, with a new bill. Um, and like you said, an added on arm of it, this whole AI act that wasn't in the last bill. Um, but primarily on the privacy side, you know, some tweaks to what they tried last time. And, you know, let's, let's go back to the drawing board. That's a really great description of, of what we've seen over the last couple of years. And, and certainly people who listen to this podcast will know that there was criticism of the last bill really from across the political spectrum. And so without any strong supporters of the legislation, other than many who wanted to see changes and an updating to the legislation, it appeared that the government well, kind of just said, let's park this for now. But as you say, it's now back. Yeah, I think that's that's fair. It's it you know there was a lot of criticism of the bill, but there was no criticism of the fact that we definitely needed to update our privacy laws. And I think even um, you know even the you know I I act in private practice for for a lot of business. Even businesses want our privacy laws updated. They don't like a, you know a mismatch of privacy policies across the world. Um, and it's it's much nicer when things are a little bit more unified. And we, we had really fallen out of step. So. Um, you know, despite that kind of criticism, I do think it's fair to say that uh, no one was against the fact that the government was trying to amend our Privacy Act. Yeah, I think that's the case. In fact, there were some business groups who were critical of the bill, uh, who even over the last couple of months had become quite vocal about the need to get the privacy reform process restarted. Why don't we move on from that background to the substance that's in the legislation, starting with consent, which is, of course, a foundational aspect to privacy. There was some controversy associated with the issue in the last go round in the last bill. There are always going to be questions about how effective consent is. What standards do you have? Can you talk a bit about what the bill seeks to do when it comes to the issue? Yeah, the, the bill, uh, actually, one of the criticisms from the last go around was that, you know, other jurisdictions such as GDPR kind of did have consent as an aspect of the of the privacy law, but really kind of moved to a more um, interest based law, where you had to kind of establish that you had a reasonable interest in the privacy in the personal information to begin with. And um, the problem with consent, you know, as you've kind of said that there's some, uh, you know, 
angst about the consent provisions. The problem with consent is we're inundated with consent requests on our daily lives. You know, I think you and I in recording this podcast are probably deemed to have consented to about 10 different terms and conditions, probably about 13 different privacy policies. Um, and it would be, it's, it's, a, it's quite a bit of a fiction to think that either you or I have consented to every single provision in any of those things, right? Like I certainly haven't read uh, them in a while. Um, and so, you know, in today's age, asking for consumers to take responsibility for their own privacy by consenting to or not consenting to privacy in the tools that they need in their daily life is, is quite a bit of a, is quite a bit of a push. So what this act does is it actually does to my surprise a little bit, you know, maybe we can talk about this in a bit, but um, to my surprise a bit, it really does entrench the consent concept still in our legislation. Um, but it does provide some important outs. Um, the, the principle here is it's consent required unless. So in other words, in order to use someone's or collect someone's or disclose someone's personal information, you need consent unless. And then there's a very long list of, of unlesses that we'll get to. Um, but it needs to be a contemporaneous consent. Um, it prescribes what needs to be presented. In this version of the bill, they've actually said it needs to be plain language, which was a big criticism that, you know, asking people to consent to things is one thing, but asking them to be able to understand what's in those consent policies, those privacy policies is a different thing. And so this, you know, has a very clear plain language requirement, which I think is good. Um, I, it would have been nice to see like, hey, if you can't explain your privacy in, you know, basics, then maybe you need to do some education or something like that, like maybe one page. And if it's more than that, then you're maybe dealing with sensitive information. But um, essentially, before our principles based privacy law required that companies comply with principles, privacy principles when it came to consent. And now it's very much legislated. You need consent. Um, and you need consent unless one of these enumerated exceptions applies. So I think there's a view that we need, particularly with the, with the penalties that have been added to the act, we needed to move away from principles-based consent, which companies were just, I mean, you, it's almost impossible to advise people what the law on consent is in Canada under the current jurisdiction, because it's principles-based and, you know, you, you kind of look at a bunch of commission commissioner statements and you look at a bunch of you know cases and you try and tell people what you know whether consent is required in an individual situation or not and it's always wishy-washy there's too much room i think for people to interpret it themselves this at least takes that away and forces people to start to enumerate themselves into some buckets of uh exceptions um but uh it still is a very consent-based law which is a little bit surprising to me so we have consent although as you mentioned there's a big list of the unless um, that will have a big impact. And I think that certainly the privacy community is going to have a lot to say about that. Many suggesting that, you know, we need to hold on a second here, that if the list becomes too long or too open, then consent becomes ineffective, that it's open. It opens the door, I think, to organizations basically to focus on the exceptions and the effectiveness of consent from a consumer perspective really becomes lost. Yeah, it's funny because in preparing for this podcast, I said, well, I'll, I'll just kind of prepare a little list of what the exceptions are. And it's a page long, um, even just the headings. You know, so you have exceptions for business activities, transfers to service providers, use to de-identify, uh, de and we'll talk about the de-identification later, research, analyze, or develop. I was surprised to see one for artistic uses of personal information. I was, you know, for debt collection, for pretension of detection of suppression of fraud, information produced in employment, breaches of security safeguards, reducing risk, administrating law. Like there's a bunch of things that obviously we think, yeah, okay, it wouldn't be right to ask 
you know, a criminal can I consent to investigating you? Um, you know, obviously there are some exceptions to consent that make sense, but this is a very long list of exceptions. It's pages and pages long. It's probably the biggest section of the act apart from the um, creation of the tribunal. And, uh, you know, it's going to be quite an exercise. There are a lot of exceptions to consent fundamentally. It's going to be quite an exercise um, in, I think, over the next part towards, uh, towards implementing this bill, we are going to see a lot of discussion on can this be streamlined somewhere? I, I would hope we're going to see some discussion on that because it, it, it's a lot. You know, it's interesting to me, you obviously mentioned advising clients and some of the challenges with advising those clients when it comes to privacy law. I'm curious, uh, you know, to what extent when you're talking to clients, are they focused on trying to fit within the exceptions, essentially trying to find a way not to have to obtain that explicit consent from consumers or are clients take the or do clients take the approach of saying, no, I, I get it. I recognize that their the consent is is appropriate. How do I ensure that I comply with that sort of consent? So is the focus on the exceptions or on, on obtaining the consent itself? Yeah, I think that's fair. I think, look, for the most part, um, the companies that I work with, you know, they're, they're subject to privacy regulations all over the world, and they're used to needing to comply with privacy laws, and they actually have, don't have much of an issue with that. They just want to know for sure what they have to do. And the problem with this long list of um, consents, some of them are very, very detailed. The problem, uh, sorry, of exceptions, which are very, very detailed. Um, you know, the issue is that um, in some cases, they may be involved in a business transaction that isn't captured by the exact wording of the business transaction exemption. And their business transaction may not quite align with the way that the legislature, most of whom have never worked in business, considered when they drafted it. And so you end up with this a little bit like, I think it's similar to Castle in that, you know, the, the principle is fine. The idea that we're going to have consent, the idea that we're going to have exceptions of consent, it's all fine. But when you get into the nitty gritty in the way that this legislation does, I think it makes it very difficult for businesses to decide, does this exception apply to me or not? And if it doesn't apply, um, and I need to do it anyway, because this is how it works in the rest of the world, what do I do? <laughs> the big difference with this version of the bill compared to 2020's version is this addition of legitimate interest as one of the exceptions. And that's actually a really, really big exemption because this adds back in a principle-based exemption. If you have a legitimate interest based on the sensitivity of the information, based on a number of factors, if you have a legitimate interest to collect and use information, you can. And it takes it out of the consent realm and moves it into, um, you don't need consent to do this, either express or implicit, which is actually, you know, to me, I, th I think, you know, I would have preferred to see them kind of lean into that and then say, now here's a bunch of things that we consider to be um, legitimate interests uh, on, a, you know, on that type of basis. Because I think that, again, asking consumers to take responsibility for um, for managing their own consent, and on the same time, asking a million different businesses to interpret these really, really difficult consent provisions in their own way, it's always going to lead to a mismatch of consumer expectations with what the businesses want to do. Now, you mentioned the introduction of legitimate interest. What kind of safeguards are built into that? Um, well, I mean, it, it kind of comes back to this whole idea of you have a legitimate interest when a reasonable person would expect by the nature of what it is you're doing that you would collect that information. Like, for example, if I'm a, um, if I'm a store, I need to collect your credit card in order to process a payment. Um, now, I have a legitimate interest in doing that. You have a legitimate in interest in doing that to make this transaction happen. Um, and 
one interesting thing about our version of the legitimate interest exception is there is this kind of reasonability test, but on top of it, there's a, provi a provision that says that the personal information can't be used for the purpose of influencing the individual's uh, behavior or decisions, which I think is clearly directed at people who are trying to say, well, we're advertisers. We absolutely want, you know, everyone has a legitimate interest in, in receiving great ads. And the way that I read this kind of exception is that this is almost like a legitimate interest isn't quite for you advertisers, um, but we'll see, we'll see how that plays out. I, I think that there is some work to do in this because clearly they added legitimate interest as a result of um, criticism from the commissioners and criticism from the business community. Also from receiving the kind of, um, you know, feedback that they got that that other jurisdictions have these types of more principles-based um, uh, legitimate interest provisions. Um, and so we, we were, again, out of step, which was not the purpose of our law. I think that there will need to be some work to realign the, pre the previous version's consent focus with this new legitimate interest exception. I kind of feel like they just felt like they could crab it in and make everyone happy. I do think that there is going to need to be some movement from some of these consent exceptions into the legitimate interest category um, and leave consent to be something a little bit more clean and pure, if that makes sense. At his opening press conference, one of the issues that the minister made a point of emphasizing was new protection for minors. In fact, I heard him on a, another podcast recently where he talked about this as being really a critical component to this to this particular bill you know what does the bill do specifically around the issue of minors if i can take a, a quick step back i think it's really important to realize that when we talk about minors we talk about everyone under the age of majority in a province and i think there's a very quick idea that we're talking about little children that need to be protected and i'm i completely agree but 16-year-olds and 17-year-olds are definitely participating on the internet, and they are just as minors as others. Um, so I, I do think that, uh, you know, we tend, when we talk about minors, we tend to think about, or, or legislators tend to have in mind, these really kind of, uh, you know, maybe children who need careful watch and protection. Um, I think that when it comes to privacy, you know, everyone under the age of 18 is a pretty wide net to catch. Um, but you know, that's maybe for a, for a different topic. I do wonder if we need to add some balancing of, of, of that. Um, but the main thing that this act does is it deems all minors information to be sensitive, um, to be sensitive information. Interestingly, there aren't a lot of provisions in the act about what you can and can't do with sensitive information, but there are a lot of provisions that say that when you make this type of a decision, when you want to apply this type of an exception, when you want to have this type of, of, of privacy policy, you need to take into consideration the sensitivity of the information. And this is basically signaling to businesses, you know, you can't say we're collecting trivial minor information. You are always collecting sensitive uh, minor information. That, that's really important. And an example for, you know, example of how that plays out is that there's this idea in the act that um, someone can request that you dispose information. You know, if you have personal information about me, I'm going to ask that you please dispose it. And, and obviously we all understand that people want some control over the information, but what this act does by making it sensitive information is say that organizations can't say, oh, well, we're going to keep it anyway, even though they've asked for it, um, we're going to keep it anyway. Um, they actually have, you know, they have to, um, you know, say, because they want to keep advertising the person or it's necessary for the products and services, they want to keep this information. 
this exception would essentially say, no, you can't because it's sensitive information. So there is a number of parts of the act where sensitivity of information plays into the decisions that an organization can make. And by deeming minors information to be sensitive, it essentially says you have to take minors information seriously, which I think is okay. I, again, I just worry that the breadth of what minor means is maybe not realistic in today's internet world. It's a great point. I think I saw a number of people raise concerns about even there's differences as between provinces in terms of. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it means that someone in Alberta has a different privacy rule than someone in, you know, at the age of 18 or 19 than, than, than BC, which is pretty weird. So perhaps a good concept, but one that is lacking in execution, at least in the terms of the way that it's structured at the moment. You know, there was a lot of talk leading into the last bill around data governance. That was sort of expanding the discussion beyond just privacy into how we deal with data. And in particular, uh, an emphasis on the issue around de-identified data real questions about whether it's captured by the law, how it might be captured by the law, and the approach in the last bill, certainly I think it's fair to say, sparked some amount of concern and questions from, from a number of different groups. The government is back, or it appears the government listened to some of that discussion, and there is an attempt to try to deal with some of those issues with distinctions between anonymized data and de-identified data. Can you walk through a little bit what the government has in mind in that regard? Sure. Um, uh, I think the, the, main, the main objection to the last version of, of de-identified data was that you could kind of drive a Mack truck through it. Um, and they've now clearly created two definitions of the act. Anonymized information is information that even with your best efforts, you could not in any way recover to personal information. De-identified information is information that's been de-identified in a manner that um, you can't directly um, uh, you know, re-identify someone through that information, but through some effort, you still may be able to. Um, it, it kind of, the way this act presents it as, it presents it as a risk of the individual being identified remains. And so I like to think of, for example, uh, anonymizing information. If I ask a million people a very personal question, and then I report that 50% of people said this and 50% of the people said the other thing, um, I clearly could never identify any individual from that again. So that information itself is probably what we would call anonymized information. On the other hand, if I say I have a list of people, I've assigned them cryptographic tokens, um, no one has access to that information behind it, but now we know some user preferences for each of these people. Um, we can't tie it to a particular person, but we do have individualized preferences. That's probably de-identified information because if I did get that cipher key, if I did get that cryptographic key, I could unlock that information and learn their information. Of course, there's a there's a huge spectrum in between there of of you know um, activities you can do to remove the personal information about someone that that will be maybe closer to anonymization than de-identification or vice versa. But those are the kind of obvious you know kind of starting points. And what the act does is it does require de-identification in a number of, of provisions. If you think about it logistically, though, information that has been truly anonymized is no longer personal information. It just it can't really be because you can't identify an individual. And that's one of the fundamental definitions of our, our Privacy Act is that personal information means information about an identifiable ind individual. So if it's been anonymized, which is now a definition in the act that says this is what anonymized means, then obviously for a lot of purposes, um, the act just simply stops to apply. Uh, so, sorry, ceases applying. And um, it's good because uh, the previous act only contemplated de-identification. And so there was a lot of questions about, well, what are we going to do about anonymizer aggregate? Like, we're not even going to talk about this is this process of anonymizing 
or aggregating information anymore. It didn't make a lot of sense to, to simply talk about de-identification. So, you know, I think it's a good development. Um, I, I think that there's, this is going to be a hard one to explain to consumers. Um, that it's my biggest worry here is that, again, if you're asking people to plain language, the difference between anonymizing and de-identifying data, I think that's going to be a, a pretty tough thing for companies to do while meeting their obligations on privacy policies. So once you've got data that's in the de-identified data bucket, not the anonymized data, but the de-identified bucket, so it, it's still within the realm of privacy protections, what does that mean for an organization from the bill's perspective? Yeah, so um, once it's de-identified, there's a, you know, there's a number of provisions that basically loosen the obligations on what you can do with it. Uh, and it's important to understand that putting it in that bucket requires you using someone's personal information. So if I have personal information and I want to uh, take advantage of these you know, parts of the act that allow me to do things with de-identified information that I couldn't do with personal information, um, I need to de-identify it. And there's an exception in the act that essentially says that you can, without consent, use someone's personal information in order to de-identify it. And I think that the intention there is that obviously it's in the consumer's best interests to de-identify information. But when you combine that with other exceptions in the act, I do worry that we've created quite a bit of a loophole here for people to have and use personal information for the purposes of de-identifying it without the consent of users. Um, again, this is outside of the legitimate interest regime. This is outside of these types of um, exceptions that are kind of based on what a reasonable person would expect you to be able to do with that information. So giving a broad-based consent exception um, makes sense in the sense that, yeah, I've, in order to identify it, I need to use it. So therefore, you know, I don't need consent to do that. That would be a little bit silly. But on the other hand, having it in there as a standalone exception, in my view, may create a, a few more problems than, than has been originally thought about. You know, we hear a lot coming out of Europe in particular, the GDPR, around new individual privacy rights and an emphasis around whether or not Canada either already has or should have some of those rights, data portability, the right to be forgotten, both come to mind. Are either of those things coming quite more clearly to Canada as part of this bill? In, in roundabout ways, I think the answer to that is, is yes. Um, you know, the... Individual, sorry, I'll start with the right to be forgotten. The right to be forgotten kind of in a roundabout way has always been in our privacy law because we have this obligation under the act to only retain personal information for as, as long as it's actually required for your kind of your business purposes or for your organization's purposes. Um, the, the, the new individual privacy rights, there are a number of sections of the act that essentially allow an individual to, um, to make a complaint um, to bring something to the attention of the commissioner. Um, there's also a whole section about um, data portability uh, that basically says we're going to figure this out later in regulations, but we want to have a data portability scheme. Um, I think maybe that was an attempt to look at what California has done and say there have obviously been some issues there. Um, from Canada, we need to recognize that we're not going to, you know, California has more pull on tech companies than we do. Let's just put it that way in a very nice way. And um, from Canada, it's going to be very, very difficult to, you know, impose rules on data portability from a practical perspective, because all of the big tap platforms are going to focus on California. And so if we impose rules that are really out of step with what California does, um, I would just have to imagine that it's going to be practically very difficult for, for any real compliance to happen. And so, 
I think that this idea of adding a right of data portability, which by the way, data portability would essentially mean if I'm on platform A, um, companies right now kind of lock you into using that platform because all your stuff is there and it's really hard to get it off. This basically says you need, you know, consumers need to have some sort of a right to move to platform B. Uh, and you need to facilitate the safe transfer of that information. You can't just, you know, uh, what, you know, one of the worries I think about a data portability, right, is that companies will say, great, here's a full version of your personal information, do whatever you want with it. But, but individuals don't really have the ability to protect their personal information in the way that they probably, that an organization, you know, like one of the major social media companies does. And so, the idea is we want you to come up with a safe data portability mechanism. We're not going to tell you what it is yet, but the signal in the act is it's going to be here. There are going to be regulations about it. Um, I expect them to align with what California's done just from a practical perspective, but I do expect that they will still respect the Canadian principles that are set out in the act, um, uh, which thankfully do uh, you know quite align with what California's done. So you've mentioned compliance compliance and some of the compliance challenges that come with the bill. And I think that provides a pretty good segue into the governance side of the legislation. We've talked a lot about some of the substantive provisions, changes that are in the bill, but there's also some notable changes or additions with respect to governance of privacy in Canada that I wanted to hit on before we close. Why don't we start with the effectiveness of the Office of the Privacy Commissioner, which for many years, it's been noted, does not have order-making power, unlike counterparts in the provinces and other data protection or privacy commissioners around the world. How's the government proposing to address the privacy commissioner's powers? Well, I mean, clearly uh, that was, I think, one of the big, biggest impetuses of, 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 this, um, of this update. Um, not much fundamentally has changed in the 2020 version from the 2022 version when it comes to the powers of the commissioner. There are certainly tweaks um, some of them are important for, you know, um, for litigators and administrative lawyers and things like that. Uh, but for the average person, the key thing to note here is that the commissioner now does have a lot of power. Um, and the commissioner basically has the full range of power they had before, which was to, you know, start investigations and make recommendations and, and, and work with other law enforcement agencies all around the world to kind of do those investigations. Those powers have existed. Uh, what we've added to that now is, you know, for example, an ability to for a company to go to the commissioner and say, we would like you to bless our compliance program. And the commissioner now has this ability to say, I can, yes, I will bless your, your, your compliance program as long as you make these changes to it. Um, that's, that's a really interesting power of the commissioner that's never really been expressly uh, mentioned before. Um, I don't think uh, it'll be interesting to see how they resource that because there will be a number of organizations, I think, who try to take advantage of that and uh, resourcing may be an issue. So that's a very light power that the commissioner has. But then the commissioner has all the way up to very, very heavy powers, you know, um, requirements to disclose information to the commissioner can make orders about people's per, um, the use or collection of personal information. Um, has the rulemaking powers for any inquiries into whether or not um, uh, a policy has been followed. Um, recommending uh, recommending penalties to a tri to the privacy tribunal. Um, prior, uh, so so a, a very broad. Basically, the commissioner has been giving all the power, and and I think uh, you know, and I know I know we also want to talk about the tribunal here. I think one of the interesting things is the commissioner has been almost given so much power that the government saw fit to uh, create a tribunal to actually implement what the tri what. In other words, the commissioner becomes a vociferous advocate of privacy 
with quite broad powers. And then it's up to an independent tribunal to actually penalize people um, in this area. So that's an interesting development. The other interesting development in this version of the act is that um, I think the commissioner was a little worried that there was, like I said, from a resource perspective, there were now all these avenues to make the commissioner do things. You know, individuals could send in a complaint um, individuals could make requests, organizations can make requests. And there's this now this explicit provision of the act that says that the, um, that the commissioner has the power to prioritize complaints and, and actions. Um, and I think the language it uses is, you know, for organizers in organizations in the greatest need of guidance, uh, and may in fact not. Um, so in other words, the, the commissioner has been now clearly empowered also to prioritize what they're focusing on, which was missing from the last version of the bill. And I think to some angst of the commissioner, <laughs> That's right. Although this approach may lead to a new set of complaints, this time from complainants, especially if they find that their specific complaint has been triaged out. Although, of course, it's always the case that prioritization points to the constraints that the privacy commissioner has faced and some of the challenges in, in striking the balance. You know, your, your response also highlighted, I think, the last two issues that we need to focus on, both the creation of a tribunal, which at times has sparked some amount of concern, whether or not that extra layer, that oversight is needed. And of course, the penalties themselves, which may have been one of the reasons that the government saw fit to establish the tribunal. Why don't we start, though, with that tribunal? We'll come to the penalties in just a moment. There's a lot there. Uh, can you talk a bit about what the, the role of the tribunal will be, how it's structured in the legislation, and then we can move on to what kind of penalties we're talking about in the legislation? Right. Well, I'll, I'll preface this and start by saying that I'm definitely more of the privacy policy type lawyer than arguing before a tribunal type lawyer. Um, so definitely not my strong area. But, you know, when I look at what the tribunal has been empowered to do, I do view it as this kind of recognition by the government that we've basically given the commissioner all of the powers that they've asked for and more. And so maybe this second level of oversight um, is necessary to make sure that there's, you know, an air of legitimacy so that, you know, the judge, jury and prosecutioner isn't all in one place uh, when it comes to privacy violations. Um, you know, you're going to have user groups and individuals that are going to make complaints. You're going to have the commissioner with a lot of power to investigate and compel people in those complaints. And then when it comes time to an actual penalty, and these penalties are, by the way, quite serious penalties. These are the types of penalties that had the entire business community freaking out about the GDPR and the California Privacy Act. Um, when you, you know, when you have those types of penalties, uh, I think the view was let's have a third party tribunal, um, you know, make make this seem more legitimate, make this seem more um, measured. Uh, make the commissioner have to argue to the tribunal why these things are necessary. Uh, if we're going to impose our power to penalize uh, organizations, let's let's you know prove it to some reasonable standard. Uh, I think that's all very important. I, I don't think that the privacy commissioners would have abused this power. I mean, they've they've been a very compliance. Our privacy commissioners, at least, you know, can't speak for the EU or other jurisdictions, but in Canada. Uh, maybe partly as a result of of the fact that they didn't have much other power, but they've been a very compliance focused, um, you know, or, group of commissioners in Canada. And um, for that reason, I would have expected them to really work collaboratively with organizations more than anything else. I also, you know, again, unless they're given a bunch of resources and investigation teams and a lot of money, I just don't know how they're going to meaningfully do a lot of this stuff. So that's a that's a separate thing. So, like I mentioned, the penalties are. are quite substantial here. So even for basic violations of, of the, you know, the, the privacy rules set out in the act, um, the 
the penalties can go up to $10 million or 3% of an organization's global revenue. Um, this is slightly below what the GDPR uh, did in, in the US, but importantly, we do have special provisions of the act where it's up to $25 million and 5% for serious uh, breaches of the act. And that is higher than the GDPR. So I think in a lot of ways, we wanted to say, we want people to treat this as seriously as everyone treated the EU's new privacy laws. And I think we all saw, even in Canada, we all saw how organizations reacted to um, the new EU laws because many of us, even just in using the internet, noticed that all of a sudden there were these notices saying, you know, we can't make this available to you. Or if you're in the EU, these rules apply to you. I mean, I think everyone saw that. And so whatever the EU did, I think there's a recognition is it got people's attention. And I feel like when it came to the, this privacy law and the California privacy law, there was a view that unless we do something similar, we're not going to get people's attention. So um, pretty serious penalties. This will definitely make businesses stand up and notice our privacy law. This is because they can theoretically reach into the global revenues of an organization. So even if, even if a company does not have um, Canada as a significant revenue base, um, the ability to penalize, you know, based on global revenues is, is quite a serious thing for most organizations. It certainly is serious for some organizations. I've often thought, though, as so many countries move in this same general direction of a certain percentage of global revenues, if there was, some, if there was a global case where everybody got involved, everybody seeking their share of global revenues, what would be left? But I suppose in some ways that's really what ensuring more effective compliance, both domestically and on, on an international level, ought to look like. I think that's right. Uh, I also think that uh, if you look at some of the other things that have happened in the intervening time, like for example, our, our uh, anti-spam law that came out in the intervening time between these privacy updates um, have really, really serious penalties with director's liability and all sorts of stuff. And I think it was a, maybe like a little bit of a reaction to how, how weak our privacy penalties were. Now that we have serious privacy penalties, you know, um, I, think, I, think it will, I think it's a good thing generally to, to have this as a mechanism. Well, certainly a law without real enforcement is, I think, for many, a, a source of frustration. And it's been a source of frustration for well over a decade now, the combination of a principled-based approach that doesn't always have the kind of clarity that you might be looking for on the substance side, much less some of the more modernized privacy rules that we've seen elsewhere, as well as the lack of an effective governance structure and real penalties, with some saying, yeah, privacy is nice, but what are the consequences if I'm not fully compliant. I think that's an important thing to realize, you know, as again, as a private practice lawyer, you know, we get asked, you know, companies want to follow the law generally. Like I do have to say one of the biggest eye openers to me is someone who went to law school, not thinking I'd ever act for, you know, private companies in a, in a private practice um, is that generally they just want to be told what to do and they want to do it. Like most of the time, especially when they're paying a lawyer to give them advice, they want to comply with the law. Um, but the question we always get asked by every good client and every good in-house team, okay, what's the law and what's the penalty, right? Like that's the second question. And it was always very, you know, um, you know, we, we, we took our privacy law obviously very seriously. We have an oath to uphold, you know, our laws and things like that and to not counsel people not to break the law. So we take it very seriously, but it was always like a, a cognitive dissonance to tell people about, okay, here's the rules in Canada. And then they'd ask, well, what's the penalty? And you'd say, well, there aren't really any, um, you know, it, it's always felt weird to me. I grew up in the, you know, like I said, the privacy law came into effect right before I came a lawyer. I grew up in this environment and that was always a very weird dynamic to me. Now, I'm glad you raised that issue because it's certainly been a source of concern for some time. Why don't we close with this? The last bill was introduced. And as you mentioned off the top, basically went nowhere. 
Now, for months, we were waiting for this, and we've at least now got a bill, and with a government that you suggested has been listening, certainly to some of the criticisms with this latest version. Parliament's on a break. There are a lot of complexities, though, for when they resume as part of this legislation. What do you think we ought to be expecting uh, when Parliament resumes in the fall with a bill that it's quite clear provides a, a good starting point? for some of the discussion, but at the same time, I think many will say that there is a lot of work to be done. And the question is to whether or not there'll be the commitment from the government to do some of that heavy lifting and from all the various parties to set politics aside in the way that we've seen with some other bills to try to get this right. I think, I think that's right. I mean, I think if, you know, one, it would be unfair to criticize the government for not having listened to their critics in presenting this new bill. Um, I think that when you look at the changes, you know, one of the first things that almost every lawyer did when Bill C-27 dropped, and certainly the first thing I did was run a comparison against the last version and see what's new. And when you look at the crux of what's new, it's essentially a laundry list of things that people said, we don't like the last bill because. And so I think it's quite fair Sorry, I should start in the other way. It would be unfair to say that the government didn't try and address a lot of these things, but it would be fair to say that I think that they held they held on to the old bill. Um, obviously, a lot of thought and effort had gone into the original bill. Um, as they took into account some of these complaints and concerns that were raised about the old bill, and as they implemented changes to reflect that, I'm still not sure they carried that through fully. I'm not sure that they've gone through the thought exercise of, so what does it mean to have this very long laundry list of consent exceptions and a legitimate interest exception at the same time? You know, how is this going to practically work? And I think it's, it's probably completely fair that they haven't had that dialogue yet. That's kind of the point of releasing draft legislation in first reading um, is that there will be a lot of discussion about it. But like you say, I do expect that um, all parties, the business community, the privacy commissioners, um, the government need to kind of come together in good faith on this because, again, there has been universal alignment that Canada's laws are sorely in need of some updating here. And so we now have a kernel of something. It's quite a large kernel, but we now have a kernel of something that that is a good privacy law. I think that's my takeaway is that for, I think this is a good privacy law. I think it's there's there's something in here that's going to work. I don't know that it's the exact presentation that it is right now. Um, so I'm hoping the parties can all work together to refine it a little bit. I do hope that the government is um, maybe a little bit more receptive to, to criticism and, and concerns about the bill than they have been in some of their other recent bills. Um, I think that because I think that they often come from good places, um, you know, and I think we'll see some unexpected alliances on this privacy bill too. Like I wouldn't expect, you know, to be this big, you know, schism between organizations and people and commissioners and big media companies and small media companies and mom and pop tech shops. Like, I think we're going to see some really interesting um, alignments here because the general view is please tell us in a clean way what we can do and how we can practically do it. Um, while no, while realizing that we have to comply with an entire world's worth of privacy laws, uh, because Canadian businesses, particularly, you know, over the pandemic, but, but just in a general basis, Canadian businesses rarely just focus on the Canadian market. Um, they're marketing to people in other countries. They're marketing to people across the world. And, you know, having really out-of-step privacy laws, one of the biggest things we've learned in Canada is having out-of-step privacy laws makes it really, really difficult to conduct that type of worldwide business that Canadian businesses need to succeed. And again, because this, you know, I talk about business law, I'm a business lawyer, but this, this um, act focuses on organizations. So, 
when I talk about businesses and it comes to this, you know, it's things like international charities and nonprofits. I mean, it's hard to do fundraising worldwide uh, as a, as a organization because you have to comply with privacy laws all over the world. And so I think that um, alignment is uh, generally a good thing. Uh, I hope that everyone understands that. I hope that everyone feels the same way uh, and that we push towards something that actually gets passed there. I certainly don't want to be back at this for a third kick at the can uh, because it's, I think at this point, the government has to pass something. Uh, I just hope that they listen to people when they do it. I think we're singing from the same songbook in that regard. It's good to see a third bill and let's hope there's a genuine effort. Try to get this one right. Ryan, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. It's my absolute pleasure. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at lawbitespod or Michael Geist at mgeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening and see you next time.